welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grota, your host for this new podcast. This is being brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. And this is a new series of Deep in Scripture programs focusing on hard verses. In each episode, I'll interview a member of the Coming Home Network about some scripture verse that they considered or would have considered hard or difficult to understand given their previous theological persuasion. And then we'll discuss how their journeys of faith in Jesus Christ brought them to realize the hardness of that verse and to a deeper understanding of that verse. And so this week, I have just... um, honored to have uh, Paul Thigpen as the guest for this program. Paul is a good friend. Uh, We've been uh, co-workers. We've done a lot of things together. Paul is the editor of Tan Books, a prolific writer. In fact, Paul, uh, welcome. Did you just tell me you're almost ready to publish your 45th book? (laughs) <laughs> yes, Marcus, it comes out within a couple of weeks. <laughs> that just that just blows me away. That's like one book for every year of your life, right? Well, I've had a had a few few years where it was two or three books, <laughs> <laughs> and a few with nothing. So it all uh, works out. Well, that's good, and I, and I strongly recommend to anyone listening any of Paul's books. And if you want to find out all the other books he's written, you can just the best way is to go to Amazon.com and just Google. Paul Thigpen, and he has an author page there. And uh, in fact, one of your most recent books was uh, the book on spiritual warfare, Paul. Talk about, just briefly about that, because uh, I I think it's a a book for our time. You know, Marcus, I I began to to feel a deep grief in, uh, in my heart because of so many people who either don't believe in the devil at all or who believe that, yeah, there's a devil, but he has nothing to do with my life. Because my own experience and, and then my experience with the scripture and the tradition of the church taught me that that's not at all the case, that there is for sure uh, that Satan is, is real. And second, that even if we don't have extraordinary kind of phenomena go on, like the kind that Hollywood likes to play with right. and play around with, that never. The less he he is after us and and his demons um, through what the church calls the ordinary activity of the devil, which is primarily temptation. And so I I thought I really just need to write a book that will be something like a a manual for the warfare that we go in. First, that will wake people up to the fact that they are in a war. There's no demilitarized zone. (laughs) There are no. Non-combatants. Everybody's uh, everybody's fighting, and um, and the outcome of the of the battle for each of us will determine where we spend eternity. So, to wake us up to that, to talk about who the enemy is, because you can't fight a war till you till you know who your enemy is first, and then what his strategies are, and then what has God given us in order to win the battle. So we have a commander, Jesus Christ. We have uh, we're part of an army that has the saints and the angels and our fellow Christians on earth. We've got a whole slew of weapons, which include the sacraments and scripture and prayer and fasting, things like that. We've got armor, which are the virtues. And uh, and then I kind of concluded with a chapter about not, not inviting the enemy into your camp by doing certain things like getting involved in the occult, as I did when I was a kid. And then uh, the second half of the book is just what I call AIDS in battle. It's, it's a number of uh, <clears throat> scriptures and anecdotes and sayings from the saints and um, – all kinds of uh, things from church history and tradition, church documents, and then prayers and devotions and hymns even that all have to do with spiritual warfare. You know, there was another 
man on the radio whose first name was Paul, who has a famous speech about about the devil, and his name was Paul Harvey. Do you remember that speech he gave once about what I would do yes, if I were the yes, devil? Yes, I did. And, uh, and there are at least two parts of it I always remember it is so true. One is the first thing you try and do is convince everybody it didn't exist because if people That's don't right. believe the devil doesn't exist, then he has free reign with everyone's thinking, everyone's hearts. Stealth strategy is what it is. Exactly. And then the second thing is to, is to use all the media to make the devil look like either a fool or, or so bizarrely powerful that he... He only deals with those other people out there, never me. You know, mm-hmm. the crazy stuff that you see in The Exorcist or some of these other things, you know, that's never happened to me, so obviously the devil's not paying me any attention. Well, the devil has free reign. And sometimes, as you say in your book, it could be the most simplest things in our life where the devil is whispering in our ear. Even when you and I grew up, remember the cartoons that would portray the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other? And so <laughs> yeah. we, saw, we saw those in cartoons, so we just wrote them off as, well, those are cartoons. No, that's exactly right, right? We have yes, those whispers all the time. So I'm so glad you wrote that book, Paul, and there are other books. Um, in fact, you were saying your next book is coming out is going to deal with uh, saints over the centuries and how they've dealt with uh, spiritual warfare. Is that right? Yes, it's also with Tan. It's uh, be a paperback this time called Saints Who Battled Satan. And I'm looking at 17 saints, uh, one chapter apiece, and how they dealt with the enemy's uh, strategies, both the kind of preternatural stuff that some people have, but also the everyday interior kind of battles that they fight. We have so much to learn from them. So it uh, starts with Our Lady and goes all the way to Padre Pio, who whose lifetime overlap with mine. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. All right. Let's get into the program. So what verse did you choose as your hard verse that uh, would have back then considered a difficult text? Well, I'm looking at First Thessalonians, St. Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. And there's uh, uh, some verses starting, two verses, starting at verse 16. Shall, shall I read them? Yes, please. For the Lord himself, St. Paul said, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the arch, archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Well, that verse seems clear to me. <laughs> <laughs> Why was it hard, Paul, Would you look back? What were the many, well, many hard aspects, actually, of that text? You know, part of it is that it um, it has to do with the circles that I, I came into when I became a Christian. I was an atheist as a teenager, and I was I was raised uh, first in Lutheran and then a Presbyterian church, but we never would have talked about anything like this right, <laughs> in those, right. those particular churches I was in. And then uh, from 12 to 18 years age ages 12 to 18, I was an atheist. And when I became a Christian, then at the age of 18, I kind of came into um, certain Christian circles that talked a lot about this verse. And what they said was that this is a description of what they call the rapture of the church. And that that notion was that that, uh, though Jesus is coming back at the end of time for judgment day, that there will be another day prior to that when the Lord will secretly pull out of the world all the Christians who are, who are true believers and, and leave the rest of the world behind. And, um, you know, another verse that they would talk about would be in Matthew 25 about um, 
that there'll be two who are at the, the mill and yep. one will be taking one left behind, two in a bed, one taking one left behind. And they put those two together. And so I thought about it and uh, I really wrestled with that interpretation. I guess maybe when I was first, first maybe year after I heard it, I didn't wrestle because I was kind of believing whatever anybody told me. I was a brand new Christian. But um, as I began to think about it, I mean, ask, okay, is that really what this is talking about? So first of all, the Lord descends from heaven with a cry of command, archangels call, sound of the trumpet of God. That doesn't sound very secret to me. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it's something that, you know, it's, that happens invisibly and, and audibly to everybody else in the world. It sounds like a very public event. And, and then where it says, we who are alive, who are left, be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and be with them. And yet I knew there were verses that talked about in the second coming, right. all the saints and angels would be coming back down to earth. So it was kind of like, okay, so <clears throat> he comes down, we go back up, we come back down. It uh, And I don't, you know, don't mean to make light of it, but it just wasn't completely making sense to me. And I wasn't sure what to do with it. And you know, when I was about the same time you were <laughs> studying theology and, and, uh, 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 and I'm trying to remember, Paul, you did serve as a pastor, right? Yes, I did. I'm mm -hmm. trying to remember. I know you've, you've been in education, and uh, that was I'm sure of that. You know, w one thing that was very important to me as a pastor, and I, I'm guessing it was for you, is we recognized that if we had been ordained and we believed that we were called by God to be in that pulpit, that we carried with us a very important responsibility to convey what was true to our congregation. And so yes. there you are standing in the pulpit with this verse in a tradition that everyone accepted the rapture. And, and, and often in that, I wasn't in that tradition, but those who I've known in that tradition, if you challenged that view, you could get in trouble. You'd be suspect. Yes. Huh? Yes. Yes, yes. If you considered a liberal, <laughs> perhaps, or, you know, whatever, modernist, I don't know. Um, and, and one of the problems I had with this, Paul, was that Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he writes this, um, does not is not using a future tense in the distant future. It's a it's a future, but the assumption is that it's there it's going to happen in their lifetime i mean that's what it sounded like to me when i remember these verses you mm -hmm. know the, the dead will rise first and then we who are alive who are left shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so we shall always be with the lord it was this this struggle also with the what theologians call the already not yet Mm -hmm. You know, this, you know, it sounds like everyone in the New Testament is ex, 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 uh, expecting the second coming of Christ to be imminent, but it doesn't happen. And I'm wondering if that's what led to some of the theology in your background to have something that was more imminent. So these verses would talk about an imminent rapture and pushing the second coming off to future generations. It, you know, it may have been... Um, when you, I finally did do a book about this topic called um, uh, "The Rapture Trap," right? Uh, an end time view of uh, a Catholic view of end times fever, and and in that, what I began to see was that there were, you know, really 
other things that were more uh, influential in shaping this this worldview or the, and the view of this particular uh, passage. So I guess, you know, I think it probably ended up being more <clears throat> several things. There were uh, a few books that were written that became very popular that pushed this view, very popular in America anyway. Um, there was a lot of concern about how the world was, was going down so quickly and so badly and um, <clears throat> a desire to be saved out of that instead of being left in it and, and, uh, and especially to escape the Antichrist and some other things like that. So I, I guess, especially as I began to write that book, I began to see, first of all, how, how recent the rapture interpretation was in history. Yeah. And, and for instance, it, you know, for you with a Lutheran and reformed background, uh, neither Luther nor Calvin believed in such a thing. Right. Um, they didn't interpret this verse that way or any, any verses for a rapture. And I began to realize it's, this is really kind of a, almost an eccentric eccentric interpretation that you find really common in America, but not throughout history and not through most of the rest of the world, except where there were certain American Christians have had an influence. Yeah. And it's, it's popularity and availability to common uh, fundamentalist believers on the one hand could be seen almost as an accident of fate. Whereas on the other hand, they would say, no, that's exact uh, miraculous work of the grace of God, because here you have this, I think he was a brethren, Pastor Darby in England, what, about 200 years ago, maybe, or 150 years ago, I think, Paul. You know, he, ha- he has a, yeah, he comes up with this view of the rapture, and then it becomes the popular view of Schofield. So when Schofield puts his Bible together, he puts Darby's interpretations in the footnotes, and then because they're the footnotes, well, that's almost scripture. <laughs> and then yeah. that just feeds everyone in that more fundamentalist uh, area of Christianity that looks to the Schofield Bible as the definitive interpretation of scripture. And that Bible, it was the, you know, the best-selling Bible for generations. And so it, uh, it had an enormous influence. Plus the notion got picked up within the revivalist tradition. So during the time when you, late 1800s, especially when you begin to have these huge revival meetings, especially for those times, or 50,000 or more people would be together at a time. And it was preached in those. And then several um, imported Protestant seminaries began to pick up the idea. And so it was just, it, it was kind of a perfect storm of, of oh, yeah. uh, possibility for promotion of the idea, even though folks from 100 years before would have said, what, what's that all about? And, and in fact, if you look at the history of it, you look at uh, some of the publications, like the periodicals by evangelical Christians, even let alone you know others at the time, when they first hear the idea, they're writing against it. They say, this is not what this text means. No one's ever said this. Luther or Calvin, no one's ever interpreted it this way. Um, and, and for them, and, and right away, they saw one of the problems with it, that if you if you take it this way, this would basically, you know, that you're going to be raptured out. This would basically take away any, you know, or could take away motivation to try to evangelize the world or to make it better because you think you're just going to escape it all. Yeah, it's like, as you mentioned, even today, there's there's a couple authors who've become millionaires writing a series of novels based on the idea of the rapture as the theme or the uh, behind the the novels, and people who had read them and really believed that it was going to happen were leaving care packages for their friends and family who would be left behind and not understand what had happened to them because they had been pulled away in the middle of the night, you know. And so, rather than try and reach out to them, just let them know why they've been left on earth. 
And, uh, and, and again, we're getting back to, as you said earlier, the idea that if you're in that circle of people, sincere lovers of Jesus Christ, <laughs> sincere, mm-hmm. faithful men and women who love the scriptures and desire to, to base their life on the Bible, uh, but yet they're accepting as an interpretation of passages like this from a teacher who they trust. And who that teacher himself may not have examined this interpretation, but have accepted it uncritically from someone that person trusted. And because it was in the footnotes of their Bible and on and on and on. And as you said, if you're in that community, if you have the audacity to stand up and say, well, wait a second, I don't think that's what it means. Then you're labeled liberal, you're, you're suspect. And I imagine in some cases a pastor could lose his job if he had the audacity from a pulpit to challenge this idea on the interpretation of verses like this and others. I'm almost certain that's happened before. Yeah. 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 So how have you come to see it now? I mean, okay, help us understand how this fits within Thessalonians, within the New Testament, within the whole wider tradition of the of our faith. Well, when I started you know, one of the first things, one of the things I began to learn to do with a passage like this was, um, you know, first of all, to, to look at the context. Um, this is actually, it reminds me of a um, a passage that, that I, I saw when I was in the Assemblies of God Church at one time. And I, I loved it. We were in a, in a, uh, had a large nursery and we came into the nursery visiting for the first time and uh, we're leaving a child in the nursery. And you know, big nursery, lots of beds, and there was a whole section over on, against one wall with changing tables, right? <laughs> and and so uh, you know what's coming probably. So um, and the kids are all kind of you know making their noises and stuff. And so they had a big Bible quote over uh, the wall of the changing tables, and it said, "We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed." <laughs> and that was just I thought this is perfect. It's uh, it's gonna it's it's gonna show me. Uh, kind of, a, you know, it's given me a great example of how you can take something out of context. Because, of course, St. Paul, when he said those words, was talking about how we shall not all sleep, we shall not all die here, but we will all be changed when, when the Lord does come. So, you know, that was always a good example for me of how you have to make sure something's in context. And I, um, what I began to do is, is try to look at the larger context here um, to compare it to other passages, which is always so important. Where where you see does he where does he use similar language and seems to be talking about the same thing, in um, in those parallel passages, uh, to the Corinthians for instance, he uses some of the same talk about the angels and the other things, but it's clear he's talking about the final coming that we all believe in the the uh, final return of the Lord, and uh, but most importantly, I began to look at commentary from across the ages, not just you know the Schofield Bible, but. Um, looking at trying to see if I could find if, if Wesley, the founder of Methodism, had to say anything, if Luther had anything to say, Calvin, and even before that, if I could find commentary from the Middle Ages and the ancient years of the church, the ancient period. And what I began to find is that all of them, without a doubt, assumed that this is the final coming. They had no notion of a secret rapture, that this is uh, all the things that happen when Jesus comes to judge the world. And so, you know, then I had to kind of ask myself, right, so what's going on with the notion of um, those who are alive being caught up to meet the Lord in the air? And I began to look at the, some of the Greek words there about the coming together, uh, the getting caught up, 
and that caught up, by the way, is, is where people get the notion the, the word rapture uh, from the Latin translation of this, actually. And, um, and began to find out that it, it was really paralleling um, an ancient custom. And St. John Chrysostom pointed this out in one of his sermons, that, uh, who was uh, uh, one of the early church teachers in the fourth century. He pointed out that, um, that this was parallel to a custom of their day in which when, when a city was going to be receiving um, a, a grand character of some kind, maybe a king, maybe a conquering general, that they would, as, as he approached the city, they would all go out to meet him. And then they would accompany him into the city as, as, as well, I guess the best example we know is, is our Lord on, on Passion Sunday, right. on, on Palm Sunday. Right. That was a small version of that. They went out to meet him from the city. They were acclaiming him as king with the palm branches and the hosannas, and then they accompanied him back in. And, uh, and that's what generals did. That's what emperors did when they came to cities. And St. John pointed out, you know, this is, this is what's going on. Um, he's talking about the Lord, the grand king, the conquering general, conquering warrior, is coming. Uh, to the world, like the city that that is uh, welcoming him, and and those of us who are alive will go to meet him and and accompany him in. Now, literally, that will be up in the air. Well, it could be figurative. It, it could be real. I mean, golly, I don't, you know, read plenty of s- stories of saints who were so caught up in ecstasy with the Lord that they actually would levitate, that actually go up into the air. Um, Saint Thomas is one of them, and and there were plenty of others. So all that, you know, those details could. Could be literal, could be figurative, but that—that's what was happening. He was using that beautiful imagery, so the same Greek words there, to talk about how we are the ones who, whoever are left, will get to welcome the conquering king as he comes in. Yeah, and as you said, the context. Just a couple of verses later, in chapter five, verse two, Paul writes, "For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night." And when you start comparing that to other verses that use those words, it's clear he's talking about the second coming of Christ. The day of the Lord. Yeah, yeah. always. That's what it means. In fact, sometimes it was such a common expression, the day of the Lord, meaning his return, his final return, that sometimes they would just say the day. Yeah. And, and, and the Bible translations will usually capitalize it because that meant everybody knew which day, the day of the Lord, the day of his return. Yeah. So, I mean, there's an example, Paul, that you could take, as you were doing in the past, verse 16 and 17, and running with that in the theology, but ignoring the context around it that clearly explained that. And it just, again, it reminds you that, um, you know, my background, Westminster Confession said that the Bible's perspicuous, it can explain everything. And if you have a hard verse, you just find another verse to explain it. Well, that doesn't always work depending on what verse you choose. That's why, as we've been taught, you interpret the scripture within its context in the book you're reading, within the New Testament, within the whole Bible, within the tradition of the church, because it's that whole uh, river of revelation that has uh, allowed us to know the fullness of our Lord and, and his church. Paul, and that's, uh, I, got, I was just going to say, I just got, and I got pressed to that when I started working on my PhD in church history and began to realize what this beautiful, beautiful treasure house of scriptural commentary for centuries and centuries was available to us. And again, you wrote your book on it, uh, The Rapture Trap, which I uh, strongly, it's still in print, right, Paul? Yes, Ascension Press, um, cool. the Raptor Trap, a uh, uh, Catholic view of end times fever, okay. response to end times fever. So yeah. anyone wants to, to take the next step with Paul and his thinking, it's in that little book. Because, Paul, what I'd like to do before I sneeze here, oh boy, um, we get a couple, I, I, 
I really want to encourage listeners to this podcast to send us your questions and your emails. And you can do that uh, by uh, emailing us at questions at deepinscripture.com. And, uh, or when you go to the website, you can just push a button that's there in deepinscripture.com and, and send us a Facebook or a Twitter comment. I've got a couple, and I want to run these by you, Paul, before we close, all right? Now, obviously, these two questions could take programs uh, unto themselves, but I just while I have you here, just run a couple questions that have come in over the line. The first okay. says, <clears throat> well, if John 6 is so literal... Is John 7, 14, 15, 15 so literal too? Jesus is a vine of nature or gives us literal water to drink. How would you respond to that? I think, you know, again, you look at the context. Um, it wasn't just that that Jesus said, uh, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Um, it's that when he said that, there were people who took him literally and who left because they basically said, you're talking about cannibalism or something. They found that too hard and they walked away. Did Jesus try to stop them and say, oh, no, no, wait a minute, come back, come back. You misunderstood. I'm speaking symbolically. Don't be offended. He didn't, even though their eternal destiny may have been affected there because they, what they did understand was that he, he meant it. Literally, you have to eat my flesh and and drink my blood. And then, of course, then, then on the night he does actually offer the first Eucharist, that's what he says. This is my body. This is my blood. So, you know, I think when you start looking at the context of, of those words, then especially you begin to see, no, because he, and he says it several times, you have to eat my flesh and drink my body. If you, yeah. But if you don't, you won't have life within you. And and one of the words for eat there is, is a very graphic kind of word that you wouldn't be using, uh, you know, spiritually or symbolically. Um, that, that means to, to eat eat his flesh and so to take it between your teeth and um, so I think in that case you know you, you compare that to the context of the other verses and and it's pretty clear whether it's vine or, or even the door where he says I'm the door that kind of thing that uh, I don't see how you could argue you know you could argue that yeah. a, a good example of that Paul is that you and I both have, have preached for years when we were pastors I didn't have any problems when I had a, a, an opportunity to preach on Jesus as the door I didn't have any, it wasn't a hard verse when I was preaching as mm -hmm. Jesus as the vine or Jesus as the good shepherd or Jesus as the way. I didn't have any, they weren't hard verses, but John 6 was a hard verse. You mm -hmm. know, how do you deal with it? it you, you can't just so easily uh, throw a, a symbolic meaning to it because as you said, the, the audience in the context obviously did not take it simply. And just that, just that alone shows its hardness. Um, mm -hmm. One more. This is a real simple one. I'm being facetious, Paul. Yeah, I bet uh, you are. <laughs> yeah. uh, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Let me read it. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The questioner asks, how narrow is the gate? Only God knows. <laughs> and I mean that, you know, I mean that literally. It's, that is a, it's a difficult verse. Um, you know, really, only God knows in the case of any individual, and uh, and yet, you know, all I can say is if you, 
you look first to the world and you realize how many people out there are living a life either opposed to God or in total neglect of God, even though they, they might have the knowledge about him. Um, that doesn't seem such a hard you know, thing yep. to believe anyway, that it could be that way. Or when you look into your own heart, you know, or when I look into my heart and I realize how hard the struggle can be sometimes. And, and I don't, you know, I don't stand up here and say, oh, yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. I'm going to, you know, no, fine, no, no problem. I know that without God's grace, um, I could fall yeah. in, in a really serious way. And so in light of those two things, I don't, I, we surely can't say how narrow, but uh, God alone knows, but it may be narrower than we would hope, than some of us would like it to be anyway. You know, that's that's the great point. Is, uh, is it narrower than we think, or is it wider than we think? And we don't know, as you said, but isn't it true that in many ways, the reason there are so many different Christian denominations is because often there's pressure to preach either that the gate is is narrower than you think or that it's a lot wider. So we have people watering down moral teaching because they want to make the gate wider and more comfortable or others that want to make it as narrow to to lead a legalistic and a real, you know what I'm saying? It's a, and we end yeah. up with all these divisions and often it's because the leaders of the church are going to th- put their own interpretation on this very difficult passage and then proclaim it to their people. So, well, Paul, Uh, thank you, my friend, for joining us on this episode of The Deep in Scripture. Again, everyone, if you'd like to find out more about Paul's writing, just go to Amazon.com and Google Paul Thigpen, and you'll find out, especially about uh, his newest book on spiritual warfare and his new book coming out about the saints that have fought those battles. So thanks again, Paul. Thank you, Marcus. God bless you and all of our listeners today. And we'll have you back sometime. It's always fun. Just a reminder uh-huh. to you listeners that we want to hear from you. You can email us at questions at deepinscripture.com or leave us a voicemail question or comment by clicking the button at deepinscripture.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and also Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network, a network of Christian men and women who, in their walk with Christ, found themselves drawn to embrace the Catholic Church. Wherever you may be on your own Christian journey, we invite you to walk, to learn, and to pray with us. So visit www.chnetwork.org, and we'd love to have you join us as a member of the Coming Home Network. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep in Scripture. Oh, next, in two weeks, our guest will be Gary Mashuda. So we'll look forward to seeing you then. God bless. See you then. Thank you.